0: Hebrews 13, look at verse 25. Grace be with you all. Amen. Final expressions, final words of individuals, of books, of publications, sometimes are the most important words. Sometimes they are words that are teaching words. Sometimes they are words that remind us Uh, Sometimes they're words that leave us with something to do. This is part of what is called the ending or the benediction. Uh, From time to time at the end of our services, I will read a portion of scripture that is referred to as a benediction. It is final words and they are words of encouragement, final thoughts, There are a number of benedictions throughout the scriptures that are known as benedictions. They have been used for centuries. Uh, They are commonly used. And one of those is actually what we see in verses 20 and 21. That is a very common benediction that if you've been in churches like this for many years, or maybe even just recently, oftentimes you'll hear words, the closing words of a service are often words like that. So the benediction here really makes up the final section of this letter. Uh, Even the final words of grace be with you all, amen, is a benediction. And it shows us that we've reached an end, only a re-end of a letter, not the end, of course, of the gospel, not an end of the Bible. Uh, And even the final words in Revelation are not the end of the word, or the end of the Bible, per se. Uh, It's just the ending of that particular epistle. So when we get to these words, grace be with you all, amen. If you started here, if you just started with the last verse of the epistle, you really would not know much about grace and you wouldn't know much about the Lord. You wouldn't know much about the book of Hebrews. You would be asking a lot of questions saying, well, those are kind words. But this is not just a benediction of kind words. This is a benediction that for those who are truly in Christ, These are glorious words. They are glorious words to end a letter. Grace be with you all. Because if you know what grace is, you know you're talking about something you didn't deserve and you're talking about something you didn't earn, and yet the writer indicates, I want that same grace that you know of, I want that to be with you. I couldn't think of a better way to end a letter. If you were going to write a personal letter to someone, that's better than sincerely yours. Grace be with you all, amen. That's a wonderful way to end even a correspondence if we still write letters. You know that thing they call a pencil and a pen? You pen those words and you write it down and you say, grace be with you all. Of course, he's writing to those who knew grace and knows what grace is. But we know that because we've gone through every verse or we've gone through every chapter of this book, we realize that this letter shows that the very, design and intent of the letter was to show that Christ is the end, Christ is the foundation, Christ is the body, the truth of everything, the shadows, the types, the figures, which really, they were necessary for the day, but they did not bring any real rest for the soul. Still to this day, your attempt to keep the law will not bring rest to your soul. You'll be without rest. You will be restless. Restless. But we know that Christ, this great truth, Christ is the center of this epistle. Hebrews is about Christ, and he is the true God of grace. Out on our sign, it says preaching the gospel of God's grace. That saying was chosen very intentionally. We want people to know that this church preaches the grace of God, preaches the grace of Jesus Christ. We know that using it in that terminology opens up to various Opinions, And well, we know what you are. You're one of those doctrines of grace, church. Yes, we are. We believe in the doctrines of grace. We believe in the five solas. We believe that these things are not just something that came out of the Reformation. These are biblical truths. And grace, yet, there would be no grace if there was no Christ. Remember way back when, almost a year ago, when we opened up looking at this particular letter We saw how the unconverted Jews, even at the very beginning, were using many arguments to try to draw back into the way of finding rest in the soul, the keeping of the law, trying to have them turn back, if you will, to to reconvert back to Judaism. That was the whole intent of the letter. They represented the law, and they even held Moses in a higher regard than they held Christ. Now, we don't do that. We don't hold Moses above Christ. We don't hold any of the biblical characters above Christ. Christ is all and in all. He is our all and all. But the arguments were convincing in some ways. Uh, They represented the law of Moses. They talked about the value. They talked about the importance of it. Uh, But they spoke against everything that really had to do with Christ. Oh, they could recite the shadows, the types, the figures. They could talk about what the sacrifice was required. They could talk about even on the Day of Atonement that the high priest could only go in and he had to take blood and he had to atone for his own sin. They could recite it word for word, but when the name Christ came up, they said, no, 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 it's the law and the sacrifices and the ceremonies. Christ has nothing to do with it. Well, we know that that's desperately wrong. And yet the writer here, continuing through each chapter, each verse, shows us the superiority of Christ, the Son of God. How the benefits of his death, the benefits of his passion, his sacrifice for the sins of his people, Christ is more excellent and, of course, more perfect than that of Moses. So why the letter? Well, you remember the letter was written, as we've learned over the year, uh, the letter was written to bring those converted Hebrew believers. And I believe there were Jewish converts as well as Gentile converts. They were all to bring them back to the knowledge of the gospel. Folks, that's why we don't ever assume that you have the knowledge of the gospel down. We're continuing to bring you the gospel before you. We're continuing to talk about grace. We're continuing to do these things because we are prone to forget them and we're prone to leave them and go back to what seems more pleasing to the flesh. Nothing's more pleasing to the flesh than what we believe our free will is. Free will pleases the flesh because we say we are the master of our dominion. We are the master of our destination and we're no such thing. It is not even you today that's making and causing yourself to breathe. It is by the grace of God that you breathe. It's by the grace of God that your heart takes another beat. It's that common grace that even he gives to the unjust. And he says, "I am, even though you're an atheist and you're an unbeliever, it is I who causes your heart to beat. We'll give God credit for that, but we will not give God credit the salvation of our soul. And yet he is the only author of it. Superior Christ. The Hebrews, of course, the letter itself contains many things that even the early believers would have been able to understand. But it also contains many things that should never cease to be at the very forefront of our mind as believers and, of course, as a church. It is the knowledge of Jesus Christ that is the foundation to the entirety of Scripture. If I do not have a knowledge of Christ, I know nothing. I don't care if you can recite all the books in the Bible in right order and backwards. You know every prophet. You know all the laws. If you have no knowledge of Christ, you are not in the body of Christ. The knowledge of Christ is the superior understanding that can only be given to us by the Spirit of God. There are people who have much interest in religious things. Religious interest does not equate to salvation. The ceremonial law, of course, was given, and it had a purpose. It's not to say that the ceremonial law, that the Old Testament Jew would have been understood and witnessed. It's full of Christ. That was the point. It's filled to the brim and running over with Christ. The gospel is Christ. The lines of the Old Testament and the line of the New Testament, they all arrive at one crossroads, and at that crossroads is Jesus Christ himself. Any roads that lead somewhere else other than Christ is the wrong road. And you're on the broad way that leads to destruction. If your road does not lead to Christ, it's the wrong road. We are united in Christ. That's the object of this letter that was written to the Hebrews. The superiority, the excellency of Christ. Christ. In these final verses, the writer encourages the brethren to attend to that grace. He reminds them, stand fast in that grace. He writes to them and reveals, and it's interesting that he even reveals in verse 23, that know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty with whom if he comes surely I will see you. It's even got this very personal uh, exhortation. He says, I am coming with Timothy and he says, I hope it happens sooner. But when he comes, I'm coming with him. You see, there is this bond that's in grace. Grace that leads to hateful expressions is really not grace at all. If we look at each other, we say, we all know we've been saved by this glorious grace. That's not going to lead us to be hateful and arrogant and prideful. No, it's going to lead us to be more humble and say, it is by the grace of God we've been saved. And that knowledge intersects at Christ. So if you say you understand grace, but you know nothing of Christ, you don't understand grace. Because it is in this that the writer brings Hebrews to a close. He exhorts them. He says, Obey those that have the rule over you. He's acknowledging there in verse 17 that there are those who are are ruling over you, not in a lording way, but they're ruling over you and they're teaching you submit yourselves to them because they are watching over your soul. That's one of the very, very humbling expressions. They're watching over your soul. As they follow Christ, they are worthy of listening to. And he ends by saying, I pray that the grace of God would be with all of you. Now, as I mentioned to you, verses 20 and 21, we'll expound these a little bit deeper, but in verses 20 and 21, we really have a benediction that's a summary statement. It's a summary of everything he has said. You say, well, that's quite an expression. Two verses express the entirety of what the book of Hebrews is. Really it is. We're going to look at those phrases because those phrases are what unites us in Christ. In these words, it is a synopsis, a summary of all the truth and everything that has now been fulfilled and satisfied and all those things that now we see are perfect in Christ. There are really two declarative statements that where everything that we are as a believer stands upon. It is the statement through the blood of the everlasting covenant and through Jesus Christ. In two verses, we see both of those expressions. Everything as a believer rises and falls on those two expressions. You take either one of those out, grace is gone. You take out the blood of the everlasting covenant of Jesus Christ, grace is gone. You take out just simply through Jesus Christ, grace is gone. These two phrases declare everything of why the believer can stand before a holy God. Everything in Hebrews hinges on those two expressions. Every bit of it. In fact, with those two phrases, every believer can sum up the totality of their salvation today. When someone says, how are you saved? It's not because you prayed a prayer. I am saved through the blood of the everlasting covenant that came through Jesus Christ. Imagine if that was actually our salvation testimony instead of, I prayed a prayer. I prayed a prayer on this date I did this, I did that. No, you're saved through the everlasting blood that covenant that was made before the foundation of the world between the Father and the Son and the Spirit. An everlasting covenant before the foundation of the world. Grace was extended to where you would be one of His. Everything that counts for our own standing before God, everything that honors God, is found in those two expressions. That's why he could write, grace be with you all. Grace is on those who have been redeemed through the blood of the everlasting covenant, through Jesus Christ. Those two statements are not attributed back to the Old Testament and back to the Old Covenant or back to the ceremonial law. He fulfilled the law, right? Doesn't mean the law went away. He fulfilled all of the law. The ceremonial parts of it, yes, they, there's a change to them. But he established these individuals and he set them upon the rock of Christ. Those sacrifices that were made, the gallons, the millions of gallons of blood that was shed never eternally took away the sins of mankind. Never completely and fully. Everything that pertains to our standing before God hinges on those two statements. But before we even look at those statements, look what he's look what he's called there, the God of peace, the God of Peace. This is a description by which God himself is called the God of peace. Contextually, it belongs to God the Father, though we read throughout the scripture that Christ the Son is our peace. He's called the Prince of Peace. That description of God tells us something about peace. Peace could never be with God apart from Christ. Man, outside the body of Christ, is an enemy to God. Now, you try to preach that in our modern contemporary church and that'll get you thrown out on your ear. That's not an enemy of God if you are not in the body of Christ, you are an enemy of the cross. It's that kind of preaching. It's not going to build a church. Not interested in that. We're interested in the reality of what does God say? Peace. What breaks that peace with God? It's a great gulf. It's sin. The issue of sin has always been man's problem. It's not been, it's not been society. It's not been our circumstances. It's not been the things on the outside to defile our heart. It's the sin of our own heart that is the great gulf fixed between us and God and keeps us from peace. Christ is the Prince of Peace. This thrice holy God as we know Him. To the believer is the God of Peace because we know a peace now that the world, the unbelieving world, has no idea about. We've even been speaking on Wednesday evenings about through our series on Revelation that we just started. We can have hope and even be at peace as the world around us grows darker and more dangerous because our comfort is in Christ and the promise of His coming again. The minute you begin to succumb to the darkness of the world and you continue to be out of peace and out of sorts, remember that if you're in Christ, He is coming again for His bride. And if you're in Christ, He's coming for you. But peace with God and the God of peace could never be the God of peace based on any worth of our own. No matter what kind of a peace offering I bring to God, I could not appease Him. I could bring God the very best that I had. I could bring God my most valuable possession and I could say, God, this is my most valuable possession and that would not bring peace with Him. That peace could only be given through the everlasting covenant through the blood of Jesus Christ. How can God, this holy, perfectly righteous God, be at peace with people who are born sinners? Yes, children are born sinners. An unpopular take on Scripture. Not my innocent baby. Scripturally, they are born in sin. They're born sinners. Change that narrative just a little bit and you change the whole gospel. You change the entirety of it all. If we get the idea that, look, they're children, these babies are innocent. No, they're, they're born in sin. So how can it be possible that if that which separates God from us or us being separated from Him, how is it possible? That something, someone, could take away that gulf could take away that distance. It's the blood of Christ. The Word of God declares that it is Christ alone who made peace through the blood of His cross. We see this, we're going to come back to Hebrews, of course, but look with me at Colossians 1. This piece that the writer of Hebrews is talking about, it's not a random reference. Colossians 1, verse 18, And He, Christ, is the head of the body, the church, who is the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, that in all things He might have the preeminence. For it pleased the Father that in Him should all fullness dwell. And having made peace through the blood of His cross, by Him to reconcile all things unto Himself, by Him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven, and you that were sometime alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath He reconciled. In the body of His flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable and unreprovable in His sight. What an amazing truth this is. It's the precious blood of Christ that He shed. It's the blood of the everlasting covenant. It's the blood that we read about in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 16 and 17 a number of weeks ago, which tells us about the covenant. This is the covenant I will make with them after those days, saith the Lord, I will put my laws into their hearts and in their minds, will I write them, and their sins and iniquities will I remember no more. Now where remission of these is, there is no more offering from sin. Having therefore, brethren, boldness to enter into the holiest by the blood of Jesus By a new and living way, which he hath consecrated for us through the veil, that is to say, his flesh. In this covenant, by his blood, we have peace with God through Christ. Again, this is not a random thing that the writer of Hebrews was writing. He wanted them to see wholly and firmly that their standing before God was based upon the blood of Christ. Back in our text in Hebrews 13, the second part of verse 20, we're introduced to another description. It says, Now the God of peace that brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus. Remember I told you all of the Hebrews is wrapped up in these two verses. So we see peace. Man's greatest problem is he's, he is the enemy of God. Peace needed to be. He needed to be reconciled to God. The resurrection is now mentioned. The resurrection is a single most important event in human history. Because it is the very thing that t- shows us and teaches us that the sacrifice of Jesus Christ was the only acceptable offering that could be made to the Father. The resurrection is proof that God the Father was satisfied with the demands of perfectly perfect holiness and perfect righteousness. The resurrection of Christ, all the sacrifices every one of the Old Testament priests, every one of the high priests, and all of the fathers who once lived were dead. Bodily speaking, they were all dead. They've all died. There is none that rose again and is now amongst and is living to make intercession for us. But the sacrifice of Christ, He did raise again from the grave. Proving that His sacrifice His sacrifice was acceptable. Christ was the only sacrifice to be raised from the dead. It signified that his blood, his sacrifice, satisfied not just the demands of what God was demanding, but the demands of the law that man could not and still cannot keep. Isn't it amazing that we are surrounded in our communities by people who truly believe they are law keepers? They believe that they are keepers of the law. They believe that they are keeping the law and that even if they don't keep it all, God will accept their sincerity to keep the law. He'll do no such thing. I don't care how determined you are to keep the law, it'll never satisfy the sacrifice required. You could give your own life and it will not satisfy God. Only the sacrifice of Christ, His resurrection Christ has been given the preeminent position. He's honored and glorified. Our high priest, we've learned about that in the book of Hebrews as well. He has a continuing priesthood. Not only did he raise from the grave, but he raised and was seen by many witnesses and ascended back to heaven where he is now seated at the right hand of the Father, ever living to make intercession. Not only did he raise from the grave, but he raised from the grave to be our continuing high priest. And yet, we have those who still say, I don't need Christ. Yet every other priest who preceded him did not continue in that office because they died. They experienced death. Christ's blood took away sin. The Old Testament, Old Covenant blood never took it fully away. It just made an atonement. That's why it had to be repeated every single year. And the priest had to make an atonement for his own sin. My Lord, your Lord, our Christ never sinned. He never had to make an atonement for his own sin. He was without sin. Even though the new modern take on the gospel now includes a Jesus who sinned, I hope you're aware that it's out there and it's very easy to detect. Listen for it. It'll start off by this. Jesus Christ must have been a sinner. It's happening in churches. Jesus Christ must have been a sinner. Because nobody would go and make an atoning sacrifice for somebody else unless he had something in the game. That's heretical. Christ did not sin. He knew no sin. He became sin for us, his people. The proof that Christ's blood took away the the sin... The resurrection of Christ. His resurrection was evidence that is only possible through the blood of the everlasting covenant and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So we see not only the God of peace, man must be reconciled to God. We see that the resurrection of Christ. Thirdly, we see this great phrase, our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep. This third description is that the Lord Jesus Christ The God of peace, the Prince of peace, brought again from the dead is our great shepherd. I will die one day, but I will be raised again. We do not sorrow as those that have no hope when a loved one who's in Christ dies because we know that because of the resurrection of Christ, There's the resurrection of those that are his. We sorrow, humanly speaking, for a loved one, right? It would be strange for us not to. But we don't sorrow as those who have no hope because we do have a hope. We have a resurrecting hope, we have the promise of a resurrection. And it's because of our great shepherd, the shepherd of the sheep. Now notice the very specific sheep. It doesn't say the great shepherd of all mankind. It says the great shepherd of the sheep, which denotes that there is a line that divides between those who are his and those who are not his. The Bible often refers to those as those who are not his as the goats. Sheep and the goats. Sheep do not become goats and goats do not become sheep. Before the foundation of the world in this eternal election and God in this mystery that you and I, we can try to think we understand this and you can try to reason this in your mind and you can try to wow me with your intellect, but you are never going to convince me how the whole principle and the mystery of eternal election works. You might wow me, but it's not going to convince me that you fully get it. Because this mystery of eternal election, which has divided people for so many years, is the beauty and the glory of our salvation. I, like many of you at one time, fought tooth and nail against the doctrine of election. I would have called you all sorts of names if you even introduced the word election to me. But it's only because God opened eyes to the reality of what this really means i would look at verses like john 10 and i would make all kinds of excuses as to how this can't be how can he be saying that only my sheep hear my voice and how do you become one of those sheep and i couldn't wrap my mind around the idea do i just by my own free choice become one of his is that what i do And I kept coming back, if that's it, doesn't that mean that my work somehow saves me? See, you're one of His because of eternal election. You say, well, that means someone, so and so, can't do this, can't do that. Listen, every service, I say what? If you're seated here today, and you do not know Christ as your Savior, repent of your sins, believe on Jesus Christ, run to Christ as fast as you can get there, Don't think about it, run to Christ. I make a promise to you, he will not turn you away. And if you cease to go to him when the command, not the invitation to repent, the command to repent. Remember, this is not an invitation to ponder and consider. Repent is a command, repent and believe. Repent and believe. You are in disobedience if you will not repent and believe the gospel. Now, there's a lot of mystery to what I just told you. Doesn't mean it's not true, just because we don't fully grasp it, humanly speaking. But Jesus himself, all of John chapter 10, is about sheep. My sheep hear my voice. They follow me. Another, they will not follow. Some of that's paraphrased, but they will not follow. Why? Because they know that's not the voice of their shepherd. This title belongs to Christ because of who he died for. Who did he die for? He died for his sheep. Now, we don't have time to look at all of it today, but if you will turn with me, please, to John 10, and we'll just look at some of these verses. I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd giveth his life for the sheep. Now, Jesus was, of course, in John chapter 10, was also dealing with the Pharisees and those who would call themselves shepherd, and he really gives... A stinging accusation to them. He tells them that a hireling and not the shepherd. In verse 12. Whose own the sheep are not. Seeth the wolf coming and leaveth the sheep. He said there are those who will claim to be a shepherd who are nothing more than a hireling. And by the way, there are thousands of hirelings in this country. Thousands of them. That as soon as the wolf shows up or as soon as danger shows up, they'll hit the door running. They're not the shepherd. Christ says, I give my life for the sheep. For the sheep. So you've got to be in one of two camps. You either got to believe that there are distinct ones who are the sheep or the entire world. Every single person who's ever lived is the sheep and it's universal salvation. So why bother reading the scriptures? Because we're all going to heaven anyway denotes that there is those that are his. Verse 12 or 13, the hireling fleeth because he's a hireling and careth not for the sheep. I am the good shepherd and know my sheep and am known of mine." He says, "Not only do I know them, they know me." Verse 15, "As the father knoweth me, even so know I the Father, I lay down my life for the sheep." and other sheep i have which are not of this fold there's this reference now to not only gentiles and jews them also i must bring and they shall hear my voice and there shall be one fold and one shepherd one one fold one shepherd Whew. one in christ isn't this going to be an amazing isn't it gonna be an amazing thing in heaven one fold jews and gentiles All his sheep. So the fact that believers are referred to as sheep here is based upon the fact of the everlasting covenant. Through the blood of the everlasting covenant of Jesus Christ. Not the old covenant is not what makes you his sheep. It's through the blood of Christ. Our Lord in John 10 was speaking to those who, quite frankly, the Pharisees, were known for holding to be the law keepers. I mean, Next Sunday, as we get in now, we're going to resume Matthew. We've been working on Matthew on Wednesdays. We took a pause for that. We're going to start talking, preaching from Matthew on Sunday mornings. We're going to pick up right at the Sabbath day and how the Sabbath became this lightning rod. And the Pharisees misused it. Added traditions and added laws that are still affecting people today as the idea that I can somehow keep the law. The Pharisees' problem was they believed they were law keepers. They truly believed, I've kept all the law. Remember that rich young ruler even said, I've kept the law from my youth up. That's quite a staggering statement. I haven't. So our Lord in John 10, he uses pretty strong language again. Verse uh, John 10, verse 24, Then came the Jews round about him and said unto him, How long dost thou make us to doubt? If thou be the Christ, tell us plainly. Just like the Pharisees, just like those Jews that were caught up in Judaism. Jesus answered them, I told you, and ye believe not. The works that I do in my Father's name, they bear witness of me. But you believe not, watch this, because you are not of my sheep. Wow, isn't it interesting? Jesus does not roll out the plan of salvation. Interesting. He doesn't say, look, now here's where the ABCs come Admit, believe, confess. You're not, oh, wait, you're not one of my sheep, so let's, let me give an invitation. Here's, here's a track. I'm not devaluing I'm not the gospel track, right? He says, here's, what does he say? He says, you believe not. Why? Because you're not one of mine. Connects belief with this is the reason you don't. You're not one of mine. As I said unto you, my sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me. If you're one of his sheep, it's because you heard his voice, not because you called him to come to you. He chose you. So that all the glory for your salvation goes to God, not to you, so that you have no reason to boast. And I give unto them, who's the them? The sheep, eternal life. Who gives eternal life? Christ Himself says, I give unto them eternal life and they shall never perish. Now He means eternally, obviously, because we know that unless the Lord returns, we're all going to experience the valley of the shadow of death. He's talking about you will not eternally perish. And who gave you that privilege? Who gave you that right? Christ will do that. And it's through His sacrifice. Not any works that I have done. Neither shall any man pluck them out of my hand. I'm sure there have been many, many people along my life who wish they could pluck me out of the Savior's hand, but they can't. I'm sure there are people who wish they could take you out of the family of God, but they can't. I am safe and secure because of the blood of the everlasting covenant. the eternal and everlasting principle that distinguishes the sheep from the goats is eternal election. I have to go back now and try to figure out years ago how I arrived at the conclusions I arrived at. Because when you, when you really begin to understand it, none of these things could be unless eternal election was true. <laughs> there, there, are, there are so many problems with Scripture if eternal election was false. False. I am left with an entire Bible of a lot of unanswered questions that I would never be able to determine where do I go with this. But when I see the electing love of God, I begin to see God's purposes and plans carried out in his election so that the sheep would be the ones that would hear his voice and that those sheep would know it. I don't know I'm saved because I prayed a prayer. I know I'm saved because he chose me. And you say, are you willing to risk your eternal soul on that? Absolutely I am. I am more willing to rest my eternal soul on that than a prayer I prayed when I was 7 or 8 years old. And there are people today that have more faith in their prayer than they do that Christ saved them. Folks, this is really where it all comes together. It is seen. Even in what Jesus says, again, in John 10, I know this is an exposition of John 10, but you just get excited when you see John 10. I mean, there's just, my father which gave them is greater than all, and no man is able to pluck them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. You think this great revival breaks out, a bunch of Pharisees and Jews get saved? No, it says, then the Jews took up stones again to stone him. They responded in unbelief. Folks, when the proverbial stones get thrown at the gospel in our society today, don't be surprised. Don't be surprised at the hatred that's being poured out towards Christianity. We have the basic principle Jesus said, just realize the world's going to hate you because it hated me. The disciples knew what that was. We do to an extent. But his greatness as the shepherd has proclaimed that all that the father gave him... He's not going to lose one. Look down at John 10, verse 37. If I do not the works of my Father, believe me not. But if I do, though ye believe not me, believe the works that ye may know and believe that the Father is in me and I in him. Therefore they sought again to take him, but he escaped out of their hands. Everything that Jesus said, they responded with hatred. If you go back to John 6, Jesus said something very similar to this. He said, all that the Father giveth me, watch this, that's election, shall come, effectual calling, right? Not they might come, they shall come to me, and him that cometh to me I will in no wise cast out. For I came down from heaven not to do mine own will, but the will of him that sent me, and this is the Father's will which has sent me, that of all which he hath given me I should lose nothing, but should raise it up again at the last day. And then look at this. And this is the will of him that sent me. That everyone which seeth the Son and believeth on him may have everlasting life and I will raise him up at the last day. You see how what's being said in Hebrews really in those two verses wraps up everything is in Christ. He is the great shepherd of the sheep through the blood of the everlasting covenant. And let's finish with what it tells us here in really what makes up the, the final benediction here. So he says this is the basis of all of this, Jesus Christ, right? The God of peace, the resurrection, the blood. But notice there's an intent for all of this. Make you perfect in every good work to do his will working in you that which is well-pleasing in his sight through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. This refers to our sanctification. Now we see that the purpose in saving us and the purpose of that is, of course, to bring glory to Jesus Christ forever and ever. And how does he do that? It's through Jesus Christ. Verse 20 is about what the God of peace, the great shepherd has done for us, verse 21 is what he is currently doing for us. Right? Sanctification. What is the source of our good works? Let me rephrase that. Who is the source of our good works? Jesus Christ. So do you see how foolish it is to think that your good works that are done apart from the merit of Christ would have any value at all? Because what he says is, it is me working in you that makes the works acceptable. I have seen over the years, I have seen all sorts of gimmicks as to good works that please God. I wish I would have written a book on it because I have seen people dogmatically stand up and say, listen, if you'll do this for the church, this very, this very thing right here, this is a good work. Here's how convinced I am about that. Unless God does the work, we don't even know if what the works that we do are really good works before God. Remember that check mark Christianity I've talked to you about? We we really think that Christianity was about here's what I got to do: check box, check box, check box, check box. I'm good with God. The good works that we do are a result of Jesus Christ working through us, through the power of the Spirit, the great mystery. Christ lives in us, but not Him actually. It's the Spirit that lives in us that's giving testimony of Christ. And any good works we do are works that are done by Christ through us. I have, maybe I'm, I think I'm right on this. I've never given you a sign-up sheet of things, opportunities for you to do a good work before God. Am I convinced that we have done good works in a sanctification process? Sure we have. But I understand also that the God of peace who has ordained us to salvation also ordains us to walk in these good works. How do we accomplish good works? How are we made perfect in every good work working in you which is well-pleasing in his sight? So the only good work is that which is well-pleasing in the sight of God. And again, I'm convinced we don't know what all of those are. In Hebrews 10, again, we, we talked about this months ago, but in um, Hebrews 10 14, there's a, there's a mention of this. He talks about sanctification. He says, For by one offering he, Christ, hath perfected forever them that are sanctified. Now, this is not works leading to salvation, this is the perfecting of what has taken place. It's sanctification. God causes us not only to do good works but makes us perfect in doing them. When we do good works, what does the Bible say we're actually doing? We're doing that which is well-pleasing in his sight. We're doing his will because he's working in us. Now, how Christ works through us, through the Spirit, is still a mystery. You know, we have people that still to this day say, well, the Lord spoke to me. I heard Him audibly. We hear all sorts of things. How the Spirit works in us is a biblical mystery. Now, we've tried to wrangle the Spirit and we've tried to program the Spirit. Attend a good old-fashioned revival meeting and you'll see what I'm talking about. We're wrangling the Spirit Saying, if we do A, B, C, and D, I promise you the Spirit's going to come down. I know of a church right now that every Sunday, this happens. Every Sunday, they are having, I mean, either God's favor is upon that place more than anybody else in the world. But I never see anybody broken over sin. I just see they're in spirit of revival every moment of every day. But it always looks the same. They do this, 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 and this. And they say, this is why why God met with us today. Listen, the reason God meets with us and the reason we have any desire to do his will is because God is working in and through us. The spirit doesn't need to be wrangled and programmed. Revival meeting starts on Monday. How do you know revival meeting starts on Monday? How do you know that? There's no guarantee revival's coming to that place. You say, well, we're just, I've heard this, we're just priming the pump. Folks, I've heard them all. Some of the things I tried. I got a whole book of stuff I tried with teenagers. I'm ashamed to show you. I got a book of all sorts of things, how to prime the pump and get, get, get teenagers to get, fall in love with God. Oh my word, what a travesty. You know what I should have done? I should have stood up and preached the Bible every single time and say forget all that. God doesn't need us to prime the spirit. The good works we're doing, it's the spirit that's working through us. Think about the fact that the even the old testament priests there was still a separation that veil The high priest could only approach God, truly approach God, one day out of the year. If he went in the day before, he was struck dead. If he went in the day after the Day of Atonement, he was struck dead. If he went in a minute early, he was struck dead. He was only able to go into the very presence of God, which was pictured by the Ark of the Covenant, one day out of the year. There was still a separation. But now you and I are told in the book of Hebrews to come boldly before the throne of grace into the presence of God. And not only do we have the ability to go into the presence of God, we're actually in God's presence every day because the Spirit dwells within us. The Spirit of God is not here because there's a building. The Spirit of God is here because there are people who are indwelt with the Spirit. I've been in meetings before where it felt like there was no Spirit in anybody. And again, it's not a, this isn't a mystical thing. I can't look at you today and say, you're, I'm, you're guaranteed, you're going to heaven. I don't know your heart. I don't know what you're trusting in. But I do know this, that it's got to be through the blood of Christ and it's through his sacrifice. We're told even in Acts 17, verse 28, and I'll paraphrase this, he says, we are in him and therefore... We live and move and have our being. The things that we do that are good works are because we are in Him and He's in us. The very truth of this makes the believer know that God is working in us, which makes the words of Paul in the the book of Philippians even more beautiful. I think it's one of of the, uh, the, the pinnacle moments that Paul says about this. But in Philippians 2, verse 12, he says, Wherefore, my beloved... As ye have always obeyed, not as in my presence only, but now much more in my absence. Work out your own salvation with fear and trembling. He's not talking about gaining and earning salvation. He's talking about that which has already happened. For it is God which worketh in you both to will and to do of his good pleasure. It's God's working in us. When God works in us, that is well-pleasing to the Father. That's what the writer was saying, that this is how it works. If the believer knows anything that's good or does anything good, if somehow we know that we've done something good, it ought to be all to the glory of God and God's working in us. Not because I am one of God's featured saints. I've... I've I've heard men call themselves one of God's featured saints. I don't even know what to do with that. What do you do with a person that says, I'm one of God's prime people? I'm not getting real close to that man. We are all at filthy rags. We have nothing to boast in. We have nothing to offer. All we can claim, and I don't say all as in blessing it, is the value of Christ's righteousness. Christ and him alone belongs all the glory because it's through Christ and the blood of the everlasting covenant. Now you notice these final words, and we'll be finished here. Notice these final words that he says it's all through Christ. And then he gives him some practical admonitions. I beseech you, brethren, suffer the word of exhortations or attend to the words. For I have written a letter unto you in few words. (laughs) I don't know how many of you think, I don't think Hebrews is a few words. Hebrews is a grand, talk about a thesis, right? He says, suffer these things. Listen to these things. Obey these words. These are just a few words. I'd hate to see if you write a lot of words. Because we know we're not even, we've been through this and we still haven't mastered Hebrews yet. I always I always have to caution us, we're reaching the end of the book, doesn't mean we've mastered it. I've still got a lot I'm dealing with. But he says, attend to them. Suffer the word. Don't turn from it. Know ye that our brother Timothy. Now, this is one of those other passages that leads people to say, Oh, it's gotta be Paul. I've told you throughout, I've had some slips where I've said Paul and I've had some others where I say the writer because I'm still not 100% set on which one. But I do know this, it was an inspired author. And it's in the Word. And whether it's Paul or another, I know I can trust it. But this is one of those other ones that make you say, wait a minute, he's talking about Timothy. It's got to be Paul. Maybe, maybe not. But he says, know ye that our brother Timothy is set at liberty. Something about Timothy's imprisonment at some point. With whom, if he comes shortly, I will see you. There's this promise that I'm coming with Timothy. Salute all them that have the rule over you. All the saints, they of Italy salute you. Tells us where it was written from. So this letter, the Hebrews, was written from Italy. So they, they all, all the saints salute you. Grace be with you all. Amen. The intent, very evident. It's a letter to inform confirm the excellency of the gospel above the old ceremonial law. To take them away from reliance upon the ceremonies that they were fond of, that they loved. By the way, folks, there are some things that we have too much of a love for that we need to be pulled away from. Some of our Christian cliches that we have said, well, this is what the Bible says and the Bible doesn't actually say that. You've just made it up over the years pull away from anything that is contrary to the gospel of Jesus Christ as a means of your salvation, the design was to persuade and to press into these believers a constant adherence to grace. It has to be acknowledged that without grace we are certainly nothing. If you know what true grace is, you don't want to push it away from you. You actually want it drawn closer. You want more. You want to know more about the grace of God. You want to know more about my unworthiness. You say, look, that's just negative preaching. Now, you've got to talk about how good we are. Folks, as soon as I find somewhere in Scripture that actually one time tells you how good you are, I'll be glad to preach it. The problem is it's not there. The problem is that any goodness is because of God's working in them. Not because of their working. That's why you don't see me calling your children to be like David and go slay a giant. That's not the intent of the Bible characters. Everything that David did, even at that age, was because he said, is there not a cause? The cause was the cause of God. And when we understand grace... We understand this ending words and phrase. A powerful expression of benediction to believers. Grace be with you all. Amen. There's not a more powerful way to end a letter than those words. Grace be with you all. Let's pray.